All right. Isn't it exciting to see uh, these folks of all ages and all stripes of life going out and serving Jesus Christ. We're excited for that. This year is uh, the 85th anniversary of Calvary Church, and from the very beginning, Calvary has had as part of its mission to be able to go around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring the scriptures, to disciple people, to grow in their faith. And so we're excited to see that continuing on, and thank you for your support for that. Each of these groups had to raise their own funds to, to be able to go out, and we're thankful for the generosity of so many that have made that possible. And uh, good morning to you. I'm Dave Mitchell, uh, also one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and uh, we look forward to studying God's Word together. We're in the book of Ephesians, and we encourage you to have Bibles in hand. If you do not have a personal Bible with you or at this point, there is a Bible, should be at least, in the chair rack in front of you. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are in the study of being better together. We want to live better together. We think life is better together in that way as well. And so we encourage you to... uh, um, let's see. I'm supposed to have something in my hand. Yeah, there it is. I've got too many things in my pockets. Sorry. We want to enjoy the ideal marriage. Uh, how many of you have the ideal marriage right now? Okay. Oh, very good. Nice. Thank you. And how many of you are wish you weren't married right now? And just, uh, okay. No, well, there's nobody. I think we're good. Nobody's. Uh, nobody has a problem. It's pretty good. Uh, I wish. That, I wish it were always that way. It's just really heartbreaking every time, and I've been doing this like 41 years now, and, and it's just heartbreaking to see how many folks, uh, and I've said in the email that I sent out to you, as I sent out every week, uh, I've never done a wedding yet where somebody has stood before me, a bride and a groom, and they look at each other and say, I hate you, I'm angry with you, I'm frustrated with you, you're driving me nuts, I resent you, you shouldn't have said that, you shouldn't have done that, I am so frustrated, now let's become husband and wife. You know, that's just never happened. Most people when they get married, if not 99.9% who get married, are in a state of love and joy and excitement and passion. They just can't wait to get this thing through this wedding ceremony and to get on with the honeymoon and to live life together. But you contact some of those folks, uh, many of those folks, and I've had people that I've married who have now divorced and uh, you see that, and you see in a year, two years, five years, ten years, even twenty years later, and they are just miserable. They are separated. Uh, they can't get along. They need mediation. And it's just heartbreaking. So what happens between the day they said, I love you, I will marry you, I will commit my life to you, and the day that they are saying, I can't live with you anymore, and we're done? I mean, what happens there? There are scriptures that teach us about those things, and I'm going to read this passage that is really the marriage counseling of the first century church. They didn't have psychologists like we have today. They didn't have therapy sessions. They don't have psychological tests. They didn't have love and respect. They didn't have focus in the family. They didn't have James Dobson. They didn't have a lot of the stuff that are available for us today. And so Paul says, well, let me help you with your marriages. And so he gave us this passage, and this is the passage on marriage. In Ephesians 5, 21, we begin in 21, even though a lot of our Bibles have this little separation there. In fact, it says in my Bible, this is not Scripture, but it simply says, marriage like Christ in the church. Really, we need to back up and even back up further than that, but we'll start in verse 21 because the power of the Holy Spirit earlier in 18 is important as well. 
But in verse 21, it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then Paul says, and by the way, let me get more specific. So he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We're better together, Paul might say today. For this reason, and quoting from Genesis, where Moses originally wrote this, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And so Paul outlines this. There's two parallel thoughts that he has going in his mind as the Spirit of God teaches him. He says, I'm concerned about husbands and wives, that they treat each other properly. But the other parallel is that I am seeing a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. Christ is the groom, church is the bride, and every marriage on earth is to be a picture of the marriage of Christ to you and me as the church. We are the betrothed ones. We are engaged to Jesus. We haven't had the marriage feast yet. When we get to heaven, we'll have that in Revelation 19, but that is yet to come. So we are in this engagement period. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about how we are the betrothed of Jesus Christ. And so I want to show two parallel tracks as we go through this. It's an interesting and great passage that we have here. And the first thing that he talks about is his attitude of submission. In order to have the kind of ideal marriage that God had originally designed for Adam and Eve in the garden, there are three things that are necessary. You need to have a, a spirit of submission. You need to have an uh, unconditional love. You need to have a long-term commitment that is lasting. Submission. When I read this passage to a couple that I was going to marry a few years ago, they don't go here, but I knew his dad and worked with Santa Ana PD, and so we had some connections there. She so said, well, because you knew my dad, maybe you would be a good one to marry us. I said, well, I'm glad to help out. And we sat together and uh, shared together, and I read, you know, here are some things that are important in marriage and that sort of thing. As I read that and described what this looks like in submission, uh, they called me up two days later and essentially fired me uh, from being their, their pastor. We're going in a, another direction. You ever been fired from a job? We've been going in another direction. Well, that was their decision as well. And so this is not always easy territory to go over, but I will go through it in a way that I hope makes new sense to those of us who sometimes are stuck in a rather archaic view of what it means to be married as a husband and a wife. Let me read the essential part of submission. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord, for the husband is the head of the home, of the wife, 
as Christ also is the head of the church. For himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. We could spend the rest of the half an hour on that. But let me just sort of summarize some things. Paul is speaking to a culture that knows nothing of our culture of marriage. We need to bring the lens of what they were living in to the lens in which we live in. Today in America, most of us get married because we found someone we enjoy being with, maybe in college, maybe after college, hopefully not before college. It's my own personal bias. And we begin to enjoy doing things together like Joy and I, we would do food shots at Denny's in Santa Barbara when we were at Westmont. We knew each other for several years and then our senior year we actually began to date and became more serious and uh, we began to maybe even think about possibly this could be something more permanent. But I was going to Dallas Seminary and she was going to San Bernardino to get her teaching certificate. And so we still had something one year beyond college to think about. But we continued to talk about these things and we just began to date and we began to enjoy our times together. And then eventually we reached a conclusion that, you know, let's get married. And we did all the formal stuff of talking to her dad, which was horrific uh, for me, <laughs> but uh, because I was so nervous and, uh, and he could be intimidating to me. And... Uh, and I respected him, and so that's just the way it was. And that's the way everybody should do it, because I had to do it. And so, uh, and so you go through that process, and then we went over and to, to my folks and all that and got married. Now, that, that seems like a normal routine for most people who get married in America. But you go to the Middle East. You go back in the history of the nation of Israel. You look at people like Isaac. You look at these individuals like King David and King uh, Solomon. And they had hundreds of wives. They would select you and you and you and you and you would be my wife. And there would be an arrangement that was established between parents. And there would be all these things that would be brought together that has nothing to do with the way we think about marriage in this world today. And so then when Paul says what he says here, in some ways it was almost liberating to some of these couples. You see some of the things that were said about women in those days, and I read from William Barclay. Uh, William Barclay, not related to Charles, said this. He quoted from the days in which Paul was writing. And one person said this. We have courtesans or we have mistresses for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guarantee for our household affairs. Another person said, The woman of the respectable classes in Greece had a completely secluded life. She took no part in public life. She never appeared on the streets alone. She never even appeared at meals or on social occasions. It was the aim that as we had it, she might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. And then Socrates said, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? That's a little bit of the mindset of the day in which Paul wrote what he wrote. So when he's talking about men, here's what you should do. Ladies, here's what you should do. These were beginning to be some new notions to the whole idea of marriage. 
because in those days there were no rights, there were no respect in the sense that we would want it to be. So when he says, wives, be subject to your own husband, to your husbands, and the husband to the head of the wife, that's sort of, okay, I get that. We are very much a, a male-dominated society. It wasn't all that long ago. America was much more of a male-dominated. Women couldn't even vote. I mean, we've seen this trend to diminish women in general. It's been part of our history. It was even more so and continues to be in the land of the Middle East. And so these are some notions you have to sort of put it in that grid as well. So he wants to have this respectful relationship and that the husband as the head, you're like Jesus. Think of how Jesus would relate to your wife. Would Jesus say that? Would Jesus do that? And men were saying, whoa, that's, that's kind of new information for me because I'm just doing what my dad did and he never treated my mother very nicely. And they wouldn't even care. Be quiet. We don't want to hear from you. You can't eat with us. Move on. So these are some concepts that are understanding. And so when he says, I want you to submit, he uses this term that submission in the relationship between a husband and a wife is not obedience. It's not demanded and it's not sort of becoming a servant. It's not inequality. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28, it says, there is no male, there is no female, there's no slave and there's no master. We are all one. And so this is new information to the people of the Middle East in those days. This is unthinkable to them. Wait a second. We have classes. We have order. I am more important. You can't treat me that way. In fact, the law in those days, in some of the cases that I could quote for you that I won't take time to, is that you could kill your wife if you needed to because of her infidelity. But husbands can cheat all they want and they won't have any repercussions. And we still see elements of that in the Middle East today. So this is a new concept for them that we are equal. So submission is this idea of orderliness. I just want an orderliness in the marriage. I want an orderliness in the relationships between a husband and a wife. I'm not asking one to be inferior to a superior. I'm simply saying there needs to be order in your marriages. Quit abusing the relationship. Now here is something that I wanted to bring clarity to because there's a lot of people that misuse this. I want you to see what God had originally designed for marriage. Way back in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve, He said, Adam, it's not good that you're alone, and so I'm going to, this is what He says, the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. There's a lot of people that take the concept of being a helper as saying, you know, I need an intern in my business, and the intern will help me go get all the things done that I don't want to do so I can do what's really important. Some people think of a helper as sort of a servant, someone you hire, someone who takes care of the details that are too small for you. And unfortunately, some people then use that term to refer to the wife. That's a pet peeve of mine. Don't refer to your wife as the wife. When you say the wife, I want to say you mean your wife or someone else's. So, again, it's a whole other message. I just want this respectfulness that God had designed for the helper suitable who is now going to be Eve that he's going to create. Here is what this word helper is translated as from Hebrew. It is Azar. Some of you know the Old Testament guy Ezra. Ezra is similar to this in the Hebrew. Azariah is, for example, the Lord has helped. Ezra, helper, Eve, is a name for God. 
God says, I want you, E, I want Adam, you've got such a big job to do in running the world that I know that you can't run this world on your own. So I'm going to create a God-like person in your life. If you're married, can you turn to your wife and say, you are a God-like person that God has given to me? I mean, seriously. I know it sort of like feels really weird, but everybody who has been given an Eve, if you will, quote-unquote, a wife, has been given someone that God says, you can't do this alone. So I've created for you a God-like woman for your marriage. That's a good thing, right? Because I know I couldn't do a lot of my work alone. For the last 41 years, I've needed a God-like person like Joy to be part of my life because it helps me to think about things in a better way. Because I can think about things in a better way. And I want it to be a better way. So he says, you need a helper. For example, the same word for Eve as a helper is used in Psalm 54 amongst many others. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is a stainer of my soul. So my wife is like God in that, as the psalmist says, God says, I am a helper. And so you have to look at your wife the way you look at God. You have to look at them in high esteem and high value, high worth, God-like. And so every time you hear anybody say anything about a helper suitable, oh, it's diminishing a wife, that's in fact exalting her higher than Adam. God didn't refer to Adam in that way. But he did to Eve. And he does to women who are like Eve. The second term of help or suitable, the word suitable in the Hebrew means this, to place a matter high conspicuously before a person. High, conspicuous before a person. Not stand three yards behind me like they might have in the Middle East. But I want you to come and I want you to stand before me and I want you to be the one that displays the godlike nature of our relationship. I want to exalt you as someone much more important than me. This is groundbreaking for the people when, when Paul goes back to the days of Genesis. He says, this is what God had in mind. And we've lost that. And in this world of uh, this macho mindset that, that we put down women, and God says, I created her to lift her up and for you to do the same. So helper suitable means Eve is a God-sized helper that is to be prominently placed before Adam as both collectively oversee the world. No small job. And so as you think about your wife, if you want to have the ideal marriage that God had ever intended, you treat her as you treat God, with respect, with awe, with a little bit of mystery thrown in, (laughs) because there's a lot I still don't always understand. My mind didn't work that way. I don't get it. But hey, I've got to grow. And so this is so key. Now, what happened? In Genesis 3, 16, Eve and Adam sinned, and the woman said, I will greatly, and God, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will give forth children. This is a, the penalty of disobedience. 
And then the key part for me is in the yellow. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This was a penalty. As I said in the email, when it says, Eve, your desire will be for your husband, it was not a desire where Eve would say, Adam, I love you so much. Let's have a getaway weekend at a bed and breakfast and really live it up. You know what I mean? Live it up. That's not the desire of a woman who is being diminished in sin. The desire that God says is upon Eve is in response to the Adam's penalty of ruling over her. And this word for desire is used in Genesis 4, 7, the very next chapter. If you do well, he says to Cain, will you not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desire for you, but you must master it. And so what God says when he says your desire is for your husband and he will rule over you, we have gone from companionship to competition. Where Eve says, my desire is to rule over you and get my way, and Adam's new thinking is no longer to place her prominently before himself, but it's for Adam to say, no, I'm going to boss you around. I'm going to tell you how to run the world. I'm going to take control of your life. There's not a healthy marriage in the world that has a controlling husband because it's all part of the curse. And so we have to unlearn all that. We're born with that. We're born with the desire to rule and get my way and I want to be happy. And in response to that, we're born with a mindset for a lot of us who are men. We're born with a mindset that says, well, wait a second, what about me? What about my rights? What? That's not fair. We get all upset because it's not fair. Why is it not fair? Because in the curse of the Adam and Eve garden experience, I'm suddenly competing for my rights as opposed to what God originally said, you, you are to be highly exalted before me. I treat you like God, that, that I have no rights before God because God, I bow before you. Where is that mindset in a bad marriage. It is not there. And because we're always, we're always fighting, we're always fighting in a bad marriage from the curse. I'm not happy. I want to get out. What about my rights? That's not fair for me. And I'm looking out for me. That's Adam and Eve. Desire, rule. Desire, rule. Control, control, control because it's all about what I want. And so that's not the ideal marriage. And that's why when you see someone standing before you and they get married and then a year later, three years later, five years later, the curse of Adam and Eve begins to show up. And spiritually stunted minds begin to say, but what about me? What about my rights? What about my happiness? And then marriages deteriorate. And so God says, that's not ever what I had in mind. So it begins with a mindset of sort of recreating what Adam and Eve had in a spirit of submission, not a demand of rights, not a demand of what I want, but a spirit of submission. You are a helper suitable. You are God and I exalt you. That's a mindset that begins to replant the garden in the marriage. And then secondly... Marriage that then grows from that 
attitude of saying, you are preeminent, not me. That's Philippians 2. That's what Jesus did. He said, you at the church are preeminent, not me. Then he says, here's the unconditional love that helps that to grow. He says, husbands, love your own wives. Love your wives. That was breakthrough for those people in the Middle East. You didn't marry because you love someone. You married because somebody arranged it, or you chose it, you somehow manipulated it, you controlled it, and it just sort of happened. David, oh, Solomon had 700 wives. There's no way he loved 700 wives and said, oh, I want to get married to you. He couldn't date that many. He, he, that's more than, that's like two women a day. You just, you just can't do that. And so this whole idea of Husband, love your wives. Solomon said, oh, I'm supposed to love her? Wow, that's new. And so God says, here's, here's kind of a new concept. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her. Now, Jesus said, well, well, wait, what's in this for me? Jesus didn't say that. I mean, I'm supposed to love the church, us, and I've got to give myself up? That doesn't make me feel happy. What kind of a marriage is that where I'm not happy? If I'm not happy, I want out. I'll find someone else that makes me happy. How many times have we heard that? That wasn't Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm going I'm to love you and I give myself for you. I will give up my entire life for you. That's, that's love. And he says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. See, present the church in all her glory. That's helper suitable. What is Jesus doing right now? He is helping you and me as the church to place us prominently before him so that to the Father in heaven, look at Father, my bride, who is the church, and I am creating within her holiness and blamelessness because I want to prominently present her to you. So Jesus is doing the helper suitable to us. We are the helper suitable. Jesus is treating us as those who are prominently placed before him as one who has given his life for us. And that should make us love him all the more. As he goes on to say, but that she would be holy and blameless, so husbands also, also to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. There's so much there, but let me say just three things about that. The nature of that love is that it's number one, sacrificial. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's sacrificial. Now, when Jesus loved us, were we pretty, clean, loving, wonderful people to hang out with? Would Jesus want to date us <laughs> because of how good we are, how clever we are? how noble we are? No. When Jesus died for us, he didn't say, I want to date you, I want to betroth you, I want to be engaged to be because you're such wonderful people. You're always doing what the Father says for you to do. No. Romans 5.8. 
But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved us in our terrible, sinful rebellion against him. We wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and yet he says, I love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to give my life for you because I want to be engaged to you. Now, a lot of us, we look at a, for a woman who's perfect. We want a 10. And as soon as she no longer is a 10, whoa, there's plenty of fish in the sea, as sea people say. And I want to find someone who will make me more happy. Well, that's not Jesus' love. Jesus never kicks us out of the church because we're no longer a 10. Jesus never even thought about not loving us because we're still sinners. 1 John 3, 16, we know the love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus gave everything for us sacrificially with no prospect of anything in return. He didn't know. There's a lot of people he's died for that never responded in faith to him. And so as a husband, I love my wife sacrificially with no prospect of anything in return. No bargain, no deal, no negotiation. Well, I'll give this if you give that. No, no, no. It's not the deal. None of us became part of the church because we negotiated a deal with Jesus. <laughs> I'll believe in you, Jesus, if you heal my body. I'll believe in you, Jesus, if you give me a better job. I'll believe in you, Jesus, if you get rid of all these wrinkles. I'll believe in you, Jesus, if you give me more hair. I mean, nobody bargains with Jesus to say, yeah, yeah, I want to be engaged to you, Jesus, as the church, as long as I get these five things that I need back in return. You don't do that with Jesus. You don't do that in marriage. Whether you're married a day or you're celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary, you love your wife with nothing expected in return. No deals, no bargains, no negotiation. If you want to love like Jesus, if you want to have the marriage like Jesus wanted you to have, that's where it starts. Secondly, it's a sanctifying love. He says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. No spot or wrinkle. And there's a lot of bad jokes you can make about that or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus is not giving me the job to make my wife holy and blameless, so I need to tell her how to live her life. What Jesus is saying, there's something that happens when Christ is in me that is a sanctifying effect that causes those around me, and particularly a husband or a wife, to have a sense of the holiness of God and a desire to be part of that. It is never the husband's job to change the wife. Never. It is the husband's job to love the wife so that Jesus can do the changing. Sanctifying is used in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, for the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Something happens in the proximity of a believer who has the Holy Spirit filling and controlling him or her that causes those around to have a sanctified effect. 
Would you rather be with someone who loves like Jesus or someone who just sort of likes you like a best friend? I mean, when you love like Jesus, there is something good that emanates from you. Would you like to be with someone who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or someone who doesn't have that or maybe occasionally has that? Those are the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit, in a very good way, sanctifies those around us. As a godly husband, and I'm still working on it, so I don't think I've sort of got this figured out, just ask Joy. But as a godly husband, I am still trying to be a person who has a sanctifying effect upon my wife and now my children. I want the goodness that Jesus has given to me to emanate to them in an unconditional, unselfish, seamless fashion so that as they draw close to me, they see more of Jesus, not selfishness. And when that happens, lives change. We need to help them to grow. I remember uh, way back when we were in Corona days, uh, we had a friend that was a deacon actually in the church, you know, the leader's like an elder here. And Joy got a job outside the home in a doctor's office. So he made an appointment to talk to me. He said, we're concerned about you, Dave, because we hear that Joy is working outside the home in a doctor's office. I said, yeah, your point She's in the world. She's going to be influenced by the world. She has to stay at home so she won't be out there being influenced unduly by the world's ways. I thought, serious? You mean what I do with her and how we live our lives is insufficient to have a sanctifying aroma of Christ? and that I need to sort of huddle with her all the time or she might become tempted by the world? No. When you have that in the home, when the home is where it needs to be, you don't worry about the temptations out there because the sanctification process is purifying in the home base. That's so essential. And then finally, it's a sensitive love. Husbands also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. A sensitive love. Husbands, love your wives like your own bodies. Let me use a crass, tangential illustration, because I'm trying to be careful about some of these things, because we're in a mixed audience here. Our dog... Izzy. She loves to be scratched on her chest. And right underneath here, oh, that little leg will start thumping. And then right above her tail, oh boy, she says, that's the spot. That's the spot. Now that's very crass. I'm not trying to compare any woman, including my wife, to a dog. But think about it. I know my dog so well, I know where to scratch her where she itches. And when I hit those spots, she, oh, oh, daddy, you got it, you got it, 
Keep going. Don't stop. That's a good, that's a good sensitivity to have. And as I think about our wives, do I know where to scratch so that she says, yeah, you got it. I'm talking metaphorically speaking. For example, in my terrible error, way back early when we first got married, I think it was on her anniversary, it might have been her second one, and I bought her a dustbuster. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And I felt so good. Black and Decker, Black and Decker dustbuster. It's rechargeable, Joy. It's rechargeable. You don't need to keep plugging it in every time you. Every time I make a mess, you can go get the dustbuster and clean up after me. That is not sensitive love. That's insensitive love. That's selfish love. That's what made me feel loving. I, it made me feel very loving towards her. It did not make her feel loved by me. Sensitive love is love that makes your spouse feel loved, not you feel loving. See, there's a big difference. I might feel very loving by giving her a dustbuster, but there's nothing about that that makes her feel loved by me. Have a sensitive love. My own body. I know what my body wants and needs. I know where it needs to be scratched. I know where it needs to be tweaked. I know where it needs to be repaired. So if you know all those things about yourself, learn about your wife. What are those things that you can do that are sensitively loving? You know, Gary Chapman has the five love languages. She get that book and look at it. Five ways, through service, through gifts, through words, things like that, that helps to communicate true love. And then finally, as I'm running out of time, I want to move on to my very last point. Marriage that endures over time from a deep commitment to each other. As we go, Paul quotes from Moses in Genesis 2 where we began earlier. For this reason, a man shall leave his father, his mother shall be joined to his wife. Let me just drive home this point. I love my favorite Hebrew word in all the Old Testament is this word for cleave. He says, I want you to leave your, your parents and cleave or join, and it's debak. You've heard me say it before. If you haven't heard it, you know, it's good for me to tell you. D-A-B-A-Q, debak. The word cleave is used in Job 19.20. It's also used in the Psalms as my bone clings to my skin and my flesh. So when God created Adam and Eve, He says, you are to cleave. Your relationship of unity and joining together is as permanent and interdependent as your skin cleaves to your bone. That's, that's powerful. When God says, you have married someone, you have cleaved to her, I see you like skin on bone. As the skin can't survive out without the bone, the bone can't survive without the skin. I see you that way. And so when divorce comes along, it's like taking a piece of skin on your hand and ripping it off. It's painful and it's ugly. God says, I don't want that for you. I love you too much. So he invites us to have this kind of long-standing commitment. Now, I wanted to finish with this, so I'm bouncing over because I want to tell you about one guy that I have become so impressed by. I've 
I followed him over the years, and just this last week, Robertson McQuilkin used to be the president of Columbia, what's now called Columbia University in South Carolina. And I quoted him a little bit in my email this last week. If you don't get that, we would welcome you to take that and read that. And his wife, Muriel, they were married for 44 years, and she got Alzheimer's. Pat Robertson once said that if your wife gets Alzheimer's, you can divorce her. Another man said about that, you should look at Robertson McQuilkin. My mother-in-law, Joy's mom, had Alzheimer's. We've seen how hard that can be. But I've never been married, so I don't know what that's like. But here's what Robertson wrote about his relationship. Once, though, I completely lost it in the days when Muriel could still stand and walk and we had not resorted to diapers. Sometimes there were, quote-unquote, accidents. I was on my knees beside her trying to clean up the mess as she stood confused by the toilet. It would have been easier if she weren't so insistent on helping. I got more and more frustrated. Suddenly, to make her stand still, I slapped her calf as if that would do any good. It wasn't a hard slap, but she was startled. I was too. Never in our 44 years of marriage had I ever so much as touched her in anger or in rebuke or any kind. Never. Wasn't even tempted, in fact. But now, when she needed me most, dot, 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 sobbing, I pled with her to forgive me. No matter that she didn't understand words any better than she could speak them, so I turned to the Lord to tell him how sorry I was. It took me days to get over it. Maybe God bottled those tears to quench the fires that might ignite again someday. And it wasn't long before I found myself in the same condition on the floor in the bathroom. Muriel wanted to help. Hadn't cleaning up messes been her specialty? But now those busy hands didn't know exactly what to do. I mopped frantically, trying to fend off the interfering hands and contemplated how best to get a soiled slip over her head that was totally opposed to the idea. At that moment, Chuck Swindoll boomed from the radio in the kitchen. Men, are you home? Really home? In the midst of my stinking immersion, I smiled and said, Yeah, Chuck, I really am. Do I ever wish I weren't? Recently, a student asked me that. Cindy has sort of adopted us, and as we sat at the kitchen table. She said, don't you ever get tired? Tired? Every night. That's why I go to bed. No, I mean tired of, and she refers to Muriel, who sat silently in her chair with her eyes vacant, saying no one's home. I responded to Cindy's questions. Why, no, I, I don't get tired. I love to care for her. She's my precious. Cindy said, well, I certainly would be. Well, Sandy and her husband are handsome, healthy, smart people, and yet she admits that it's hard constantly to affirm one another. What happens when there is so little to commend? How, how does love make a difference? Love is said to evaporate if the relationship is not mutual, if it's not physical, if the other person doesn't communicate or if one party doesn't carry his or her share of the load. 
When I hear the litany of essentials for a happy marriage, I count off what my beloved can no longer contribute, and I contemplate how truly mysterious love is. And I just go to the very end. Not only was Robertson McQuilkin like Jesus in keeping his word to Muriel, he was like Jesus in his love for her. Others can refute unwise statements like those of Pat Robertson that I referenced. But this is how Christ's love for the church is our model. He laid down his life. So should we. When it comes to marriage and Alzheimer's, listen to Robertson McQuilkin and not Pat Robertson. This is a man who's now in heaven last week, went there, who recreated the Garden of Eden who got it when God says, I've created a helper suitable for you. That he never stopped making this Alzheimer's patient who is his 44-year-old wife, 44 years of marriage wife, prominently placed before him as one that he served. He gave his life. He quit the job of presidency of the, of the Columbia University so he could serve his wife full-time. That is a picture of all Paul's talking about. That I love sacrificially, sanctifying, and sensitive to the ways that makes her feel loved. I ask for us who are husbands to do the same. Let me pray. Father, help us to be those men and women in a marriage relationship that models the Christ that we worship and his love for us, the church. Father, thank you that you have given to us truth from your word. And for some here today who may be struggling in their marriage, Lord, I pray that this might not really, probably doesn't fix all the problems, but God, that it becomes a stimulant to say we need to do better. We need to improve. We need to work in certain areas so that we become the people that makes us more loving. Help us, Father, as we continue to worship you now and commit all these things to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.